everybody, and welcome back to You Can't Win. This is Tom here, and I'm joined by Don as usual. And we have a returning guest, Mike. You also know him as Professor Pizzagate. Today we'll be talking about the coronavirus vaccines, which are, uh, I guess they're starting to roll them out now, and uh, they will be available perhaps sometime <laughs> in the next year. We will see. Uh, we'll see what Mike has to say about that. But I guess there's like a variety of different vaccines that different companies are doing, and um, I, I don't know about you guys, but for me, the information that is kind of like the general idea about what's going on with these vaccines, it just uh, it doesn't pass the sniff test. Like it seems really fishy and a lot of convenient sort of things about it. So I just don't know what to believe. I don't know, you know, what's right and what's wrong and how far should I push my like contrarian cynical kind of impulses on this so we got the expert on we got mike he's been uh doing some research on this stuff for quite a while we've kind of been had this one in the works so i don't know a few weeks or so you've been pouring through all the papers and stuff so yeah um yeah there's there's actually uh, a book i i'd like to plug right up front just like if if you don't listen to any of the rest of this like please don't go read this book uh it's called medical nihilism and it was written by uh, Jacob uh, Stugenga. And it's a, an excellent book about basically medical trial statistics and why the vast majority of um, drugs, he's talking mainly about drugs, but many of the same points uh, apply to vaccines, why uh, the majority of these drugs probably don't do very much, even the ones that are extremely hyped up and sold extremely widely. You know, they're very profitable they tend not to actually do very much when they're subjected to like rigorous statistical examination by people who are not paid by those companies that are selling them. And it, it really, I think, is very important to understand in this kind of climate where people are, you know, almost in this inquisition-like way, you know, saying like, don't you trust the data? Don't you trust the science? And mm-hmm. the reality is, is that most of these people are not keeping up with medical pharmacology literature really at all and that there are many significant problems with this industry and with the way that they conduct trials and you know if if we're aware of that i think that we can be appropriately skeptical about the aspects of of these vaccines that are a problem um without kind of descending into you know facile conspiratorial stuff about you know the vaccines being here to sterilize us or whatever <laughs> yeah i did hear <laughs> yeah, about yeah. that so i guess we'll we'll just kind of clear that one up right up front is that just a bunch of bunk as uh, far as we know yeah so i i mean i i looked into that one because it was you know i laughed like when i saw it i was like okay like you know what's the what's the story here because you know these days you can always find someone with a little bit of like molecular biological training who will you know, give you give you a, a link online to you know some impressive looking sequence database that shows you like okay like these two proteins are similar like whoa you know like so the the result there is that there's a, a protein called uh, synactin or syntactin I think um, that's involved uh, with reproduction that is similar you know I think the the number is like sixty three percent similar sequence similarity or something like that to um, over some stretch of it to the uh, viral spike protein so because the vaccine is targeted at the viral spike protein and the the mrna vaccines basically are 
so an RNA message that codes for the viral spike protein. And the idea is, okay, but if you have an antibody response against that protein, which is similar to this protein involved in reproduction, then you're going to have sterility in the population like following from administration of this vaccine. That's, that's the idea. And it's, I mean, look, like if, if that's true, then, you know, what uh, is even uh, a greater risk is being infected naturally with coronavirus because that has tons of the, the viral spike protein that you're going to be exposed to and you're going to raise a huge response against that and that's going to sterilize you. So, I sure. mean, I, I, I don't know. Like, none of this stuff really makes any sense when you're thinking yeah. through. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, my kind of first question on this is uh, sort of related is that, uh, you know, when people are a bit worried about this kind of stuff, like, what's the worst that could happen with this rollout? Like, what's the, what is like the catastrophe of it? Is it just that uh, a large percentage of people just to end up getting it from? I, I, I am like, you know, I almost failed grade 10 science kind of guy. So like, what is like the, the fear involved in this? Well, okay, like the, the rational fear, I, I think, is that the um, administration process happens in such a way that, well, okay, there, there are a couple of different things that could happen, but let's, let's just say the worst case, like likely worst case scenario uh, sure. is, is something like, yeah, it enhances a adverse reaction to the, well, basically like a, it would enhance the viral pathology. That's possible. It's possible that, you know, a, a vaccine whose long-term effects have not been studied, you know, when the patient is, let's say, reinfected by a mutant strain, may have some type of adverse reaction, like, as, as secondary to the administration. But it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to really say anything about, like, how likely that is. I mean, part of the problem here is that when people are saying this definitely can't happen, right? Like, it's totally safe. It's fine. Nothing can happen because there's no known mechanism by which this happens, whatever. They actually cannot make predictions about that kind of thing, right? Like, we just don't mm-hmm. know. And trials are not designed to find harms. Um, this is, you know, a really important point in Stadenga's book is that trials are notoriously bad at finding harms. And so, even, you know, what are supposed to be the most rigorous large scale trials, uh, which are the you know um, phase three clinical trials, are followed on now by what are called phase four trials, or like just pharmacovigilance, which you know the, as the name implies, just means like you have to continually surveil the population who's receiving drugs afterwards, because usually that's when you find out that things have gone wrong. So probably, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we're not talking about a situation where you administer this on a mass scale and like tons of people are falling over dead, right? Like that's not going to happen. Yeah. We know that's not sure. going to happen, but you know, are there long-term kinds of negative or adverse consequences to administering these vaccines? We don't know. There's no way of knowing at this point. And the idea that you know, and basically all of the regula- regulators and um, public health authorities are saying the same thing, which is you know, this is well tolerated, right? Like it's gotten through phase two, uh, and people are not dropping dead. And, you know, nobody's dropped dead over the first couple of months of, admi- of administration in phase three. So, like, basically looking good, right? And those aren't all of the endpoints that we typically care about, right? Like, most people are worried about, 
you know, is this going to have some kind of like chronic long-term effect? And we just don't know. Mm-hmm. And so on that kind of line, what, like what will probably happen with these vaccines? Like it, it, the way that it kind of is being, being presented to me at least is that, you know, there was this disease that exploded onto the public that we had really, you know, it was hard to predict that when it would happen, maybe kind of thing. Like, like statistically it had to happen. Uh, it might've happened, you know, whatever, ever so often just by the way that these things sort of develop. But like then, you know, then we kind of got the eggheads to work on it and they created these MNRA, whatever vaccines, and then we'll get it. And then in the next year or so, is everything going to go, you know, back to normal? Is it just going to, is it like we get it and then things are fine? So, I mean, this, this is the crazy thing, right? Like I, um, there's one of the inventors, uh, the, of the, uh, BioNTech, the Pfizer vaccine was in the news a couple of days ago saying COVID will be with us for 10 years. And we shouldn't expect at the kind of like rate that the vaccine is being deployed, that it's going to have much effect this winter. So, you know, it's being treated like a magical ritual. And everyone, everyone wants to just kind of like do the ritual and end COVID, right? Like we're all going to get vaccinated and then go back to work and everything's going to be normal again. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, you don't have to take, it's it's not, it's not conspiratorial to say that's not going to happen, right? Like the inventor of the vaccine is telling you it's not going to happen is definitely not going to happen. That guy is not, I mean, so the kind of like 95% efficacy, whatever figures that have been peddled are all kind of like early look. Um, unblinded data from their phase three trial. So you know that they're doing that and they're probably following it very closely internally. So it's, I think, not a surprise that after about three months after the trial began, you know, if they're looking at internal data, three months is probably what you would expect for, you know, kind of a, a first jab at a at a coronavirus vaccine, which is, you know, a class of viruses that have never been vaccinated before, right? Like there's no vaccine for the common cold. Um, yeah. You know, it's not a surprise that an immature uh, technology, um, you know, this is a, a new development platform, you know, mRNA-based vaccines. There's there's none of, none of them have passed phase three trials yet. There are no successful mRNA vaccines. Okay? So this is, this is the first shot of the first development program to hit the road trying to make a vaccine for this. Okay. Like vaccine development programs go for 20 years without producing. So, yeah. you know, and, and there, there are many mRNA vaccine uh, development platforms in operation at this point around the world in different, different companies, different organizations. So this is, this is very much a first look at like what this technology is going to do on a, on a mass scale. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, is it is it going to be one and done? There's no way. There's no way in hell it will be one and done. You know, they're they're already saying like, okay, because the the idea is we don't know how long this will protect you, but we do know that you need to take two shots. And now mm-hmm. they're saying like, okay, but based on this first look stuff, if it's if it's fifty percent effective after one shot and ninety five percent effective after two, then if we plug those numbers into our model then really what we should be doing is giving everyone one shot because supply constraints mean that it's very difficult to spread the available vaccine supply and maintain the two-shot dosing, right? So what's actually yeah. going to happen is a lot of people are going to get one shot and go back out into the wild, and it's not going to do anything. It's not going to do anything. Oh. It's not going to have any effect. 
Um, mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, now you have Fauci saying like, oh, well, actually we need 90% vaccination rates across the population for this to do anything. And he was saying, you know, 60 to 75% uh, a few months ago. And now he says like, oh yeah, I had to say that because of like the conspiracy theorists, right? Because people wouldn't, wouldn't take the vaccine if I told them the truth. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, it's, it's not, I, I don't think this is something that we can expect very much from the, in the short term mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. Mm. You know, you mentioned this, that we've never made a coronavirus vaccine before. And that was one thing that sort of kind of raised my eyebrows when I heard like, oh, yeah, we, we just kind of came up with it. It actually worked this time. And I understand like there's a lot more resources and stuff behind this than anything before it and all that kind of thing. But I don't know. Is that is that fall within the realm of like likelihood that they just managed to do it this time? Or is there something to be skeptical about there? So uh, and the, the speed is something that is, is being pointed to by a lot of conspiracy theorists. And I, I think, you know, the speed reflects the platform. Like the, the, the point of the mRNA technology, right, which basically, so for people don't, who don't know, there's lots of ways to vaccinate someone. Uh, and basically what you're trying to do is get either a whole um, virus, either alive or inactivated, or part of that virus into a person. And the mRNA platform, basically what you're doing is you're creating RNA message for part of the the virus, in this case, the, the spike protein. And that's very easy by comparison to producing the actual protein. Okay, so I, on a bioprocess level, this is very quick. And what they were able to do because of the nature of this platform, like you know, synthetic uh, genomic biology is at the point where it's like it's pretty easy to produce large quantities of some transcript. What they did was take the first Wuhan strain sequence that came in and take the, the spike protein, and probably they had a bunch of candidates that they modified a little bit. And of their first batch of candidates, this is the one that looked the best. That's kind of what happened, right? So there's there's nothing... There's nothing especially suspicious about the speed, but it's just like, you know, I, I, I mean, there, there are many problems here. And the way that this is going to be played is the science has changed. Like they'll keep saying the science has changed. The science keeps evolving, you know, this kind of stuff. But it's, it's largely going to be used to cover for industrial problems that are used, uh, that are cropping up in keeping up with the virus, right? Because the virus is no longer Wuhan strain anywhere, right? It's been mutating for a long time in the wild now. You know, so the promise of the mRNA technology is we can keep retooling, we can keep up with these sequence changes. But if what's happening is that those mutations are uh, occurring, you know, kind of on the scale that we're seeing in the wild, it, that's going to be very difficult, right? It's going to be very difficult to exploit this this kind of technology. And the trade-off with the speed is that really you're only producing one part of this this organism with this this virus right so that is by nature it's called a component vaccine rather than what uh inactivated vaccine typically so the component vaccines are only one part of the virus they're less effective they're simply less effective at raising an immune response than the whole inactivated organism so it's no surprise for instance that the chinese have gone with um like a very simple process to um like formalin inactivate the virus and they're just dosing people with whole virus rather than than deal with this stuff. And I, I think the reality is, is that these 
mRNA vaccines uh, are not likely to do very much, and they're not likely to be all that toxic either for the same reason, because they, they're component vaccines. That was my gut feeling about how this would, how they would do this, is that companies like Gilead and all that, you know, Fauci has ties to those people, you know what I mean? And yeah. they're going to see this as like a, how do we get people to want to take this? Like, how do we, how do we kind of provide ourselves an opportunity to sell a bunch of these vaccines and get it all administered? And, you know, we don't want to be killing off like half the population or whatever, but it doesn't necessarily have to cure anything or do anything. It just, you know, this is a, an opportunity for us to sell a bunch of stuff that's easy to produce or something. So exactly. that was kind of my, my gut feeling was like, they're going to find a way to just like sell a bunch of snake oil and like, Oh, I guess we got to go back to the drawing board and come up with another one. And then it's just round two. And, and, and when there's insufficient take up or you can just blame, you know, things not working on insufficient take up, then you get to b blame the racist chuds for not taking their, their vaccines. Right. Yeah. All the conspiracy theorists and stuff, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I, and I don't look, I don't, I don't believe that these things can't work. And I don't, you know, it, it may well be that they give you protection for a couple of months. Like, I, I think that's plausible entirely. But at the same time, I mean, what you're actually talking about is this long-term um, strategy that, you know, even the vaccine inventor is talking about. We need to think about 10 years. Okay, well, how are you going to maintain production of these things and distribution, particularly the Pfizer formulation, which requires this, uh, requires minus 80 storage? Um, which is going to be difficult for many places. The way it's being sold is so disconnected from the like industrial facts on the ground. It's mind-boggling. It really is. Mm. Yeah, and and I mean, it's very obvious that you know profit motives have a lot to do with this, right? Like you know, the the CEO of Pfizer, the CEO of Moderna, you know, they're booking their sales. Uh, at the press release, or stock sales, I should say, of uh, at, at the press releases where they're releasing this first look data, right? Like, <laughs> you yeah. know, they they know what's up. You know, they, I don't I don't know how people like the you know just trust the science people like explain this to themselves. It's where it's like, look, like the trial's not even finished. We don't even have the data. Like nobody finds drug harms before phase three with this kind of technology in general. I mean. It's, it's possible, like, I don't think anyone's died anyway from, from an mRNA uh, vaccine in phase one or phase two. And, like, Moderna, who's been around for a decade or two now, I mean, Derek Rossi went down there to, to do that, and he hasn't produced anything for that entire time. Nothing has got through phase three. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Like, this is, it's, it's very strange. It's, it's difficult to understand, like, how these people are, are interpreting the what's going on right now as like being legitimately scientific because it's just it's plainly mm -hmm. quite a lot of self-dealing and you know really from from the regulators just like i i don't know what those people are smoking honestly like they've, they've completely lost the adversarial component of their function and you know a lot of that probably has to do with like personnel problems but it's very obvious now that like there's there's no skepticism about anything that's going on right like all you have to do is look at the recent history of medical trials you know and I, we have this this list maybe i'll just kind of list these off these are all drugs okay that have been removed from market by manufacturers prohibited by regulators but clinically constrained commercially marginalized due to excessive harms 
um, over the last 15 years, okay, Accutane, Avandia, Bextra, Pondamin, Gataflow, Trazolol, Zelnorm, Reductil, Vioxx, Baycol, Raplon, Mylotarg, Raptiva, Furoxone, Surzone, Accomplia. Okay, those are all drugs that basically had been through the trials process, definitely through phase two trials, right, which is where we're at with the vaccines. And then it turned out like, oh, dang, like this is like giving tons of people heart attacks. Like uh, that was mm-hmm. Avandia or Rosaglitazone, right? Like the, and the manufacturer set up a whole kind of like faked up trial to pretend like it, it wasn't. And then the FDA finally had to step in and be like, you know, this is all nonsense. We have to remove right. this from the market. I mean, this stuff happens all the time. This is recent history. Um, it's not, you know, doubting science to kind of be a little bit skeptical of this industry and the way it interacts with regulators. Right. I trust the science. I trust money science. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 I mean, Um, they've been doing that stuff since back in like the forties with cigarettes and stuff. And it's just never changed pretty much the same game. Yeah. And I I mean, I think the, the thing that we're seeing here, I mean, we, we have sort of a cultural moment uh, happening that is like very strongly colored by, uh, American culture war stuff like now yeah. all over the world you know so this is like all bound up in that kind of stuff as well as you know just being at a peak of um, sort of like a local peak of trust in scientific and medical intervention like people really believe in the biotech story in many many ways now um, and it's kind of it's kind of cyclical like it doesn't it hasn't always been that way um, you know, through the, the 19th and 20th centuries, there have been kind of periods where people are like, you know, none of this stuff works. You know, like most drugs really don't help anyone. You know, most medical inter- interventions are, you know, occasions for iatrogenic injury or nosocomial infection or other kinds of problems that happen secondary to it that nobody ever thinks about before they do the medical procedure. So, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I think we, we can be and, and ought to be um, looking at kind of like the, the popular discourse around this stuff as like, you know, not, not just a hysterical kind of reaction to the COVID, but also kind of like where we are in the historical moment and who's in charge and, you know, like their kinds of upbringings, um, in the, in the scientific and medical systems where, you know, if their, if their career was really made in like the 1980s or 90s with that kind of work, um, you know, many of those people are like charmingly faithful about, you know, the efficacy of medical interventions in general and mm-hmm. have, you know, very little doubt uh, when they go and say, you know, like, yes, of course, this works. Trust the science. And I, I think we can kind of, you know, look at things a little bit more skeptically, you know, and, and not think of ourselves even as like out of step historically with what's gone gone before. And it's the, the sort of popular popular idea about this that's really at a step yeah um yeah i think even just to to get personal about it like i had that same sort of uh up and down journey with this kind of stuff uh for many years like for before like you know i i sort of in my late teens early 20s started spinning out on the sort of mental side during those years i was very very hostile towards uh medications in general like an end and like therapy and stuff i thought that like it was basically like a fad and like uh you know it, it was just like a 
disaster for people and stuff in a lot of ways. Like, and I think the reason why was because I saw like some sort of advertising or something for something like, I can't even remember like Paxil or whatever. One of those. Yeah. What was, what was the big one? Uh, I can't remember. Uh, the like Prozac, uh, or... Prozac yeah and uh, I read something I think it was something like that like over 10 million people were on it or something like that and uh, I was like at that point it can't really just be mental illness because it's just like a mass campaign you know what I mean it's like t- like if tens of millions of people are on these drugs it can't be that like 10% of humanity is broken in some way or something like that I thought you know I just it didn't didn't make sense to me yeah and um from there, I once I uh, started taking, um, I, I you know I then once years later I started taking a bunch of different ones to try to see what worked, uh-huh. and eventually I took like antipsychotics and yep. uh, they they really for a few like for a year or two they really changed my behavior in a mm. lot of ways like I be my parents describe it as becoming like a zombie mm. basically, you know and then for some reason like over time it seemed to it's hard because I attribute it to the medication in some ways, but it seemed to really help reduce certain things around thinking that was getting close to delusions or something like that kind of thing, you know, like really. So for a few years after that, like until recently, I was all like, okay, well, I'm I'm not even going to even consider the whole pharmacy critical kind of stuff because I know it helped me personally. So I don't want to, go too far down that road. Now, I've sure. had a lot of terrible side effects because of that, like, you know, gaining 50 pounds in one year or stuff like that kind of stuff that's common, right? And you can kind of tell how much they affect you in different ways because if you miss your medications for one day, you just start spinning out. Uh, like, I, you know, Effexor I take too is antidepressant. And, uh, you know, that one is famous for if you don't take it for a day, like you start getting, feels like zaps in your brain and stuff. So it's right. pretty, it's obviously like, it's obviously like affecting something and uh but you know i'm at the point now where it's like i feel like good enough that i want to start thinking more critically about it and also thinking about like is it is it a rock that keeps tigers away kind of situation like if i stop taking it in the next year or two would i start sliding back to more psychotic types of thinking because it it really is affecting things or was that more just like to get me through a phase where I can get to the other side, but it's hard because it is one of those things where if you're looking around online on this kind of stuff, like how am I supposed to be able to navigate that? Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I think it's important just for me to emphasize that I'm not, I'm not saying like drugs don't do anything. Sure. I've done, done drugs and I'm aware of their, (laughs) you know, but the medical side of things and the way things are sold is, is a problem. Okay, so my sure. uh, example here would probably be, well, I mean, you can, if you want like drugs that have effects, but like maybe they're not like long-term the effects that you would want, uh, you can look at like Ritalin, right? So, um, and generally speaking, like the, the stimulants that are prescribed for ADHD and ABD all kind of follow this pattern, right? Where like many of the trials, if you look at the, sort of pharmacological outcomes of interest or the clinical outcomes of interest um, that they're measuring, it's like interaction frequency with the teacher, right? So mm-hmm. <laughs> like if you give the kids speed, then like, yes, they interact with the teacher less because they're hyper-focused on, you know, something else. But, you know, at, at the same time, 
you know, if that's kind of the the way that our clinical uh, outcome of interest is being operationalized, like that the teacher is feels feels better about like the student's behavior. I mean, are are we really getting at the medical outcomes for the the patient? And you know, when you look in the long term, the answer is probably not. Like, the, there aren't all that many studies that follow up with kids who have been on speed for a long time um, for ADD and ADHD. But uh, the ones that have, in general, find that they end up no better than the kids that have those diagnoses and don't uh, take those drugs. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and in many cases, they suffer as a result. So there are, you know, they, they tend to be stunted, for instance. So there are many instances of this, you know, there's, and there, there are even things like that are much worse, right? Like we mentioned um, antidepressants. So you have like Paxil, for instance, uh, was deliberately marketed to kids despite, they, they actually, they had a trial which showed that the administration of Paxil to adolescents increases suicidal ideation. And then they interpreted the data such that they could say, okay, it doesn't, it decreases suicidal ideation, and then they administered it to kids, and kids started killing themselves. And there's like huge, you know, like billion-dollar lawsuits um, about Paxil as a result of this, right? And, you know, mm-hmm. so there's there's no question that, like, you know, drugs have effects, and that, like, some of those effects are useful to the people who are taking them, for sure. I mean, like, yeah, no, no question sure. at all, right? The, the problem is, is when we get into these large-scale kind of questions about, like, you know, basically, like, ADHD meds and, you know, even even things like depression and anxiety, like, these are these are now, like, institutional constructs for managing people. Mm-hmm. And in, in important ways, especially for kids and for students, because, you know, those are those are big untapped markets for these companies. I mean, they want to get into them. So, I, I mean, I wouldn't ever discourage anyone from, you know, necessarily using a drug that they genuinely feel that they're benefiting from. But at, at the same time, I mean, I, I think we can afford to be a lot more sparing about who we think benefits and you know, really the, the balance of benefits and harms that they're kind of accruing from that. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about the different sorts of vaccines, just to kind of bring it back to that. Uh, yeah, so there's sure. like a, a variety of different companies that are trying to produce different vaccines. And from what I understand, there's like significant d- differences between them. I haven't really looked into this, but I'm sure other countries are also like you mentioned China earlier that they're doing vaccines in a different kind of way and stuff. So I'm sure like other countries around the world are also producing their own vaccines and stuff. So what, what should we kind of know about that? Like what's the, what's the takeaway from that fact? You know, like do you, have you looked into the different vaccines that are being produced and noticed anything or, or what? Nothing that you wouldn't expect really from, from the nature of the, the bioprocess that's being used. So the mRNA vaccines are first to market like that is totally expected. That's the point of those things. You know, uh, China went with like a very simple process that's well characterized and easy to do. I mean, that's very appropriate for, you know, their conditions. Um, there are a number of different ways of getting to um, a component vaccine for uh, COVID and um, some people have been doing kind of like so typically um, if you need to produce a recombinant protein which means 
uh, approaching you from a uh, manufactured sequence that you're inserting into a production organism, like a bacteria or like uh, Chinese hamster ovary cells or you know pretty much anything that you can uh, grow in a vat and will produce a ton of protein and um, be easy to harvest. You will produce like a ton of spike protein in one of these organisms. And many of the, the details of those processes are closely guarded. Um, so I'm not all that familiar with uh, the specifics of you know, what's going on with different companies. But um, I, I would expect in general that like the most efficacious vaccines, the, the ones that are going to have like the largest uh, effects as well as being you know, potentially the most dangerous for people who are you know, um, either predisposed to some kind of allergic reaction or maybe are for whatever reason a candidate for a cytokine storm for, from COVID or something like that. Probably the vaccines that will have the most problems with those are the like the complete complete viral vaccines. So so like the Chinese one, um, Sinovac, I think it's called. The ones that are probably likely to be less effective are the component vaccines, and those are not just the mRNA vaccines, but there would be recombinant proteins and stuff like this. Um, the, I, I think you know really the most important part of this is that the variety of vaccines being produced and released very, very quickly is very, very large. Um, and I would encourage anyone to go investigate the research productivity of um, the major vaccine manufacturers over the last, uh, let's say, 20 years, because it's not been very high. This is the highest pace of development and releases, and everyone is releasing whatever their freaking candidate is. Okay, because you can get uh, an emergency use authorization from the FDA or from Health Canada or from whoever, they'll give you an emergency use authorization without completing your trials. And that indemnifies you against any kind of legal liability. So why would you not do this, right? So we're going to have mm -hmm. a huge variety of vaccines and probably most of them, you know, they're not likely to be all that harmful. Um, I, you know, I don't know. But at, at least some of them will be because of the nature of the development process and because of the nature of the, the regulatory application. At least one of these things is going to have real problems. And we just can't hmm. tell which one that's going to be. It's just uh, yeah, like it, a wait it, and see. Yeah, it's it's very difficult to say. And and I mean, I think, you know, personally, like, you know, I understand people who are taking the vaccine, you know, like, yes, do the ritual, like get back to work. In many cases, you have to, right? Like your, your work requires you to whatever. And, um, you know, in some places they're, you know, checking uh, vaccine documentation, I guess, stuff like this. So, you know, if you need to, okay, well, you know, I, I really don't think that this is like a huge personal risk for anyone who's like a healthy adult, but uh, at the same time, if you don't need to take the risk, I wouldn't, you know, wait, wait till the phase three trial is done. Like that's what we do normally. I mean, if they're saying COVID's going to be around for 10 years, what's the rush? Yeah. yeah. That's kind of my attitude about it. Like I can just do the whole quarantine thing, social distancing stuff. You know, I'm working from home. I can kind of make that work as long as I can. And until I need to be out in public and stuff again, then uh, at that point, maybe uh, I'll, I'll take a look at what the situation is and reconsider things. But for now, I see no reason to go and get a vaccine just for the sake of it. You know, like I'll just err on the side of caution and 
just let the information come out as things develop, you know? Yeah, I I would also, I mean, I've been seeing some really disturbing stuff in the media and kind of like the medical press about like, how do we, you know, how do we encourage pregnant women to take the vaccine? Whenever you see that, it's just like, <laughs> wait a second, what the fuck? Like, what are you talking about, right? Like, there's there's no data with regard to pregnant women. So why would you be encouraging them? Like, you know, and so, I mean, if, if you're pregnant, like, please think twice about this. Like, not all that long ago, the manufacturers were saying, like, this is probably not appropriate for pregnant women. Um, an mRNA vaccine, there's no reason to think that it can't cross the placental ba- barrier. And, like, does anyone know what COVID spike protein in your baby's brain does? No. No, they do not. Okay? They don't know. So, it, you know, it could make them really smart and good at sports. <laughs> <laughs> it's a possibility. Sure. So over the like next year, what is this process going to look or like two? Is it going to be this thing where, you know, like I guess they said in Ontario they might give cards out to people that have been vaccinated or something so you can like show them to like uh, authorities or something. Like say I I, uh, jump, you know, I do the opposite of Tom and try to get out of the thousand year quarantine as fast as possible. (laughs) (laughs) Non-believer. Try to to get that vaccine. Uh, Am I allowed to like go places? Can I like go to like Paris or something or can, or like, will, will, uh, they say like, you know, I guess, yeah, the the underlying question is too, like, uh, if I get the vaccine, if I, if I get the vaccine and then somehow am exposed to COVID, uh, can I give it to someone else? So you potentially you can. Yeah. I mean, okay. This gets into like kind of anybody kinetics and serial conversion kinetics and stuff like this but it, it kind of depends on when you were vaccinated and when the exposure was right so like let's say they give these vaccine passports for anyone who gets one shot definitely like if those people are exposed at a time when their uh, antibody response is not high like within the first couple of days after the vaccine or after a couple of months they could be infectious for sure like i i don't see any reason to doubt that in, in terms of like what will happen with that kind of like vaccine passport system, I mean, I don't know. But what I can tell you is that there are a lot of people who are salivating over that kind of like biosurveillance, um, biodata market because it's potentially huge. And if it gets like kind of the regulatory sanction, um, all of this is going to become like kind of an interlocking system real fast where it's like, you know, these are the approved like manufacturers products that you can buy in order to get your vaccine stamped for like this four month period or whatever and then like yeah you can go to the grocery store you know i i don't know what they'll do and it could be anything at this point like I, I think in ontario some of the stuff they were saying was like actually pretty pretty draconian like potentially it would be like quite difficult for you to participate in social life in any way if you didn't have some type of documentation about this but you know if you're if you're hickey neat then you're fine <laughs> yeah 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 you have to go outside <laughs> well i don't know it'd be nice i can break free one day maybe i don't know like should i just commit to this lifestyle for the next 20 years or something or it'll be yeah. fine okay <laughs> okay i don't know i'm still skeptical i don't know it'd be nice to visit people i don't know yeah i um, I, I, I really don't know how i i mean i think the the reality of this is that it's going to be very difficult for many people to get doses within the next year. Um, sure. Uh, I recently, I think it'd be a, a Tuesday, recorded a, a thing with uh, John and Emmett. You guys had them on uh, Exhaust uh, podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, Check out Exhaust podcast. 
Yeah, so we we went over kind of one of the supply chain kinks that is likely to become more apparent over the next year, which is um, single-use systems. And basically, these are like kind of glorified disposable plastic bags that are used in bioprocess manufacturing instead of big stainless fermenters. And, uh, you know, that manufacturing sector, which is absolutely critical to vaccine manufacturing, is not ready for, you know, like billions and billions of doses. So before like, we can even scale up the vaccine manufacturing to billions and billions of doses, we have to scale up the single-use systems uh, manufacturing to make enough of the plastic bags to grow the cells to get the, the vaccine out of, or in the case of the mRNA vaccines, um, just to, to directly uh, perform the reactions within the bag. So the problems that are likely to crop up with um, logistics, distribution, you know, these kinds of uh, industrial affairs um, problems are quite dire, I would think, and are going to preclude like mass vaccination. Like it's just not going to happen over the next year. In in the sense of like getting to like ninety percent of the population vaccinated or whatever. So I, mm-hmm. I think they're gonna have problems kind of like rolling out the because it's it's not gonna be as easy as saying like, well you could have got vaccinated if you want to. Like that's that's not gonna be it. Like there's gonna be supply constraints for a long time. And if it turns out that like, you know, these you know, I, I don't know what to make of this London thing. Like, there's no, there's no real evidence that this strain is like more infectious or whatever, as far as I can see. Um, you know, that's what I've seen too. Yeah, yeah. Like, it, it looks like they're just explaining kind of a loss of control over their case numbers with like, oh, like we found, you know, we sequenced a new variant. Like, well, there are thousands of COVID variants now, right? Like, it's not that's not significant in and of itself. Um, but mm. if that kind of rate of mutation keeps up and that does have an effect on the uh, efficacy of the vaccine, um, then we could run into problems very quickly that way as well, because many of these technologies like simply can't keep up, right? Like if you, if you are doing a recombinant protein system and you have licensure on one particular recombinant protein and you need to like modify that next year, it may be a lot of work to do that. And it may be a lot of regulatory back and forth, even with the kind of emergencies so you know i don't know but i don't i don't think that they're gonna have much luck kind of doing like a like a massive rollout where it's like okay like now the people who have taken the vaccine are like clean and get the passports and they're in the system and then like the rest of the dirty plebs are outside of the system like that's i i don't think it's gonna work that way okay yeah do you think there could be problems with the fact that there's such a variety of vaccines where you get the first shot of something and then there's some issues where your town can't get, you know, the second shot. So they, instead they're getting this other shot and then, you know, you end up getting that or something and then that could cause problems or is that probably negligible? No, no, that's not negligible at all. And the the supply chain problems are going to, going to produce that kind of issue where people are getting like different kinds of vaccines targeted to like slightly different sequences and these kinds of things maybe to different strains like would that be dangerous in any way it's it's very difficult to say right but not probably not like overtly like in the sense that like you're going to like die from you know like crossing the streets like that's not that's not it but what (laughs) what might happen um you know there's there's quite a bit of of evidence now we can throw some papers in the show notes about this that like repeated uh flu vaccine administration tends to 
blunt later responses to flu. Okay, so this is this is kind of the analog with COVID, and they, nobody wants to talk about this, but like you know, you, you get your flu shot every year if you if you get that thing. So um, you know, COVID will be similar, maybe even even more frequent. And what happens when people are taking uh, flu vaccines regularly, you know, as recommended um, over many years is that, you know, by like year eight or so, your immune response is blunted. And uh, in some cases, you know, like antibody maturation is delayed. Um, there are other kinds of problems that can crop up. And so this is kind of an emerging issue within the um, uh, vaccine community now like there's been a lot of back and forth about this like is it real is it not real I, I mean as far as I can tell it, it looks pretty convincing um, that this can happen and I would expect that would be kind of the problem with like you know it, it would be something like that because like each each year you're getting a different flu vaccine right like they're all directed against flu in general but it's a different strain each year and probably something like that could arise from like you know, just getting kind of like a hodgepodge of COVID vaccines over over the years. Like you might get to the point where it's like you, in fact, are not able to respond appropriately when you are infected with COVID. That's that's certainly a possibility. It's it's also possible that this kind of mix and match stuff. I mean, the the there was some speculation. I I haven't really followed up on on whether or not this panned out, but you know, it, early in the pandemic, I mean, after a few months of sequence surveillance people were talking about like potentially you know different strains of covid interacting in different ways to like sensitize people to later infection you know that kind of thing and if if something like that is going on then you might expect like different you know vaccines to possibly have something uh, or a, a, a similar phenomenon that probably the the overall response would be lower. I mean, in general, like you can think of vaccines as being like a less, less effective infection, if you want. Right. Hmm. Okay. So what would you recommend people do? It kind of sounds like you're suggesting caution and patience as much as it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, I mean, obviously there are all kinds of people for whom that's not an option. You have to go beta test a Pfizer product and I'm, I'm sorry that we have this society and you know you have to go do that right and you know like some people like I was talking with someone about this the other day that for my situation I can wait you know but if I was like a medical worker and I was dealing with this like you know on the front line as they say I would have different you know I would weigh things differently like if I was exposed to it all the time I you know I might feel that it would be worth it to take the shot or and whatever you know so sure and and you know I mean my I I really don't find it in like I mean there's some people who are saying oh it doesn't work at all like or it's like you know it's actually a poison vaccine whatever you know I I don't find it implausible at all that it works for a couple of months like that would not surprise me at all and if you are a nurse or something and you're going to be able to, you know, get a dose of this stuff every two or three months and you're like, okay, well, that might be a strategy for you. It might not work out in the long term. I don't know. But we're, we're all kind of left groping around in the dark right now because, you know, I guess like my 
my message about it would be have low expectations and and don't trust either the pharmaceutical companies or the regulators because the evidence is that they're not looking out for you and that they cannot find significant harms um, that occur at a low frequency in the population by you know a low frequency if across the entire population if we're talking about 90 percent vaccination rate is required could be a lot of people they're not going to find those harms in trials so hmm. you know, look at the evidence go read jacob stegenga's book i would say like i would strongly recommend everyone do that medical nihilism you get out of gen whatever and right we'll put that in the show look. notes as well yeah 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 all right yeah so i think it's time for us to dive into the questions uh let's see what we got going on today um okay how about this one i am the producer of the upcoming film sicario 3 night of the desperado (laughs) would don be interested in starring as a professional human trafficker who helps benicio del toro go against his former cia handlers to bring his daughter that he didn't know he had across the border while fighting off government agents and mexican drug dealers yeah that sounds like a lot of fun i don't know I uh, I really enjoy those movies because uh, they're sort of like discount bin uh, Oliver Stone movies or something kind of thing. Like they they have like it's it's like some of the few movies that actually deal with politics. Like James Bond's another one that are sort of like this, where there's like actual bad guys in politics kind of thing that aren't like just uh, th- that like try to trick people and like have you know CIA plots and all that kind of stuff. I don't know, it's fun and like just brutal violence and. Uh, I don't know, like stuff like a drone shooting at you or something, you know, I don't know. That seems pretty cool. <laughs> I don't know, like, uh, <laughs> they're, they're, like the, the soundtrack is very menacing. And, uh, you know, I, I think like that's uh, people always talk about politics. They get like excited about like, I don't know, like if they're liberal, something like Joe Biden, Kamal Harris or something. That's not even like the cool part of politics. I don't know. Like the cool part of politics is like a Mexican cartel controlling your town. And, uh, you like, they see you reading a book and and then like, I don't know, like cut off your head or something like that's, you know, the badass, uh, insane side of politics that. Yeah. Sounds real cool. Yeah. Like get, you know, focus (laughs) on that part and not like, you know, CNN is just now it's all like, uh, that's why Fox news was, was great for that. Like a lot of people is because they get to turn it on and it's like people are crossing over the like iran is sending people over the border right and blow up grocery stores that happens in the second sicario iran (laughs) sends people or someone like sends people over the border via somalia to mexico over the border oh no no no. that that, anyway that's that's what you think happens anyways but like and then they blow up uh, grocery stores and people and then that's why the cia is allowed to go no more rules against the cartels because they've been helping terrorists or something. So, uh, you know, that that's cool. I don't know. Yeah. Life imitates art, you know? It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, let's move on here. This question says, if you see a trans have a good post, do you like it? Is this haram? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't like make an effort to not like posts based on people for things like that or for anything really like that you know yeah good posting is good posting yeah and, i think yeah uh, no it's not haram i'll just throw that out there that's my sure. fatwa on that yeah i also think that like uh on this sort of thing uh you should never i kind of flip back and forth like you, you i mean you should always love the poster 
hate the post kind of thing, right? Like, <laughs> like feel good about them, uh, and then uh, you know try to try to try to be positive about any given person, but then uh, you know uh, trash their post. But I also think that like uh, you know I think there's also a kind of the inverse rule somehow, like paradoxically, for liking tweets, which is hate the post or love the post, right? Where you're, where you're like you don't have to. Uh, endorse who the person is you know like a lot of the times i'll read jokes that are funny and i'll retweet them even though the person that posts them really annoys me or something and uh i feel that's uh justice because maybe in another life we could have been friends or something so yeah that's right. very magnanimous yeah yeah this is called dialectics sure <laughs> Um, okay, I think this one is good for you guys. It says, should Canada accept the Turks and Caicos as Caicos. the... Caicos. Yeah, I guess that would be the better way to pronounce that word. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Caicos as a new province. Um, so what so is that? Is it an island or something? It's a Caribbean. Uh, is it currently part of Britain? I don't know. Like it's a protectorate. Or, I'm not sure. Um, but they... Uh, I think they actually, you know, and, and so anyways, there's a campaign sometimes that says that they should be able to join Canada so that Canada has its own little enclave in the Caribbean and, uh, you know, for tourism reasons or whatever, stuff like that, and that it would be good for them because, you know, they would be part of Canada, so they get to have our benefits, whatever. It's kind of like a viral media thing that happens uh, every few years. And, uh, it's not, it's not like a hundred percent unserious. Like, uh, so Turks and Caicos, they, uh, they use, I think they used for a while, they got kicked out, uh, RCMP officers, like, uh, our, our national police, they got the contract for their policing there or some types of policing. Someone told me the other day that they got like kicked out because they did such a horrible job or something, but like, uh, surprise. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. But it, yeah, I don't know. It's. So this is the thing. I like the idea of like unity across the Americas at some level. Like I am one of those guys that'd be like, it'd be kind of neat if Canada, the United States and like all of Latin America were like and Caribbean islands and stuff were like one super state or something. I think that's kind of neat, the idea. But like, uh, I don't want Canada to start getting involved in like uh, protectorates or, you know, colonies or whatever in anywhere. I mean, it's Canada is already basically like Israel for like uh british people kind of thing it's just like just colonized a whole area and then wiped out a bunch of people and you know i don't know it's it, we don't need to be meddling and you know taking over jamaica or something i don't know yeah i, I would ask the, the puerto ricans about how this is working out for them their relationship with the mainland i you know I mean, I, I, if this were to actually happen, I, I doubt things would, would turn out all that well. Like, the, the best possible case would be that, like, Canada does not interfere whatsoever or have anything really to do with the governance of the place. Yeah. Plus, I mean, at some level, should the government be encouraging airport tourism? You know? Yeah. Or, it's you a know, that's a, that, that's a climate change question. I, uh, I don't know if I've ever been able to get it through. I can't remember, but I, whenever uh, I submit jokes places, um, I always submit one that's about Cuba that I always talk about how Cuba is, uh, an airport tourism country. That's like horrible for climate change and stuff like that. <laughs> I get into that a bit because, uh, 
anyways, because that pisses off a lot of the socialists that are like, look, they don't use fertilizer or whatever, you know, stuff like that. Like they, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, but like millions of people fly there every year just to sit on the beaches. Like that seems like a climate disaster. I don't know. And Your you can whole country. tell all the people yeah. defecting are really concerned about this because they don't even take a boat. They just hop on a raft. They're really trying to stay very sustainable and zero emissions with their travels. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. But uh, anyways, no no editor has approved that yet. So, yeah. Sad. Yeah, we'll see. All right. This one says, do you guys have a favorite SNL sketch? I'm not Hmm. much of an SNL guy myself, to be honest. So... I don't know, maybe like the Chris Farley thing, yeah. you know, living by, down by the river, the van kind of, you know, yeah. I don't know. I really don't watch SNL very much. Yeah, that is the the best uh, one, I think, the Matt Foley motivational speaker. But like, uh, yeah, I read a story about that the other day. Apparently, Bob Odenkirk wrote that with uh, I Farley. saw that too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was cute. So, and uh, it gets taken over by Phil Hartman in the SNL version, but- uh, that's kind of interesting to me too, that whole like farm team system or whatever, how that's always worked. Like, you know, the different Chicago or wherever places, uh, improv teams and stuff like end up sort of trickling up a lot of these jokes to SNL and stuff. I mean, there's also like a lot of accusations of blatant stealing and stuff, but I don't know. I think that's kind of, I find it cute at least that like all these people used to be, a lot of them at least like were just random. They sort of worked their way up to some extent with Chris Farley and stuff like that. I don't know. Now I feel like a lot of those people are almost like professionals in the way that they went to NYU and then did like a hundred thousand dollars of improv training or something. And then, you know, like it's a lot more of a thing. Like the thing that I like about like the entertainment and stuff in the past, a lot of the time was that it was a way of doing that instead of real work kind of thing. A lot of the time, or if it was like, it was kind of like a, trivial dirty sort of profession kind of thing like you went bar to bar trying to you know get your drinks free and then sleep in the comedy condo or something (laughs) (laughs) kind of thing instead of i don't know you know treating it like a hollywood profession or something so yeah yeah there is a snl sketch that was shot in a like a fast food place here that i order from sometimes and i didn't know about this sketch like and i was just looking at their menu on their website and it kind of mentioned it so i went and saw it and had like you know adam sandler's in it and uh uh jason richards right george costanza he's he's the guy in it and then yeah i don't know it was just kind of fun to see like this place like oh yeah i order like hot dogs from there sometimes you know oh yeah that's cool it was was just kind of fun uh mike do you have one or did you say or you know i was i I can't even think of one other than like the Chris Farley stuff. Like, what, what was that like? The the what is love? Like the clubbers. Oh thing? yeah, yeah. Oh the yeah, yeah night in Roxbury. the Roxbury. I remember Roxbury. the movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I you know I don't remember too much of that stuff. Sure. Um. Okay. So this is kind of a cool little comment. It says, "Here are some words of wisdom. Idiots do what they don't want to do. Intelligent people do what they want to do." And geniuses do what they need to do joyfully because they understand it is beyond them. Okay. Yeah, I thought that was cool. I don't know. I heard like a <laughs> gong splash in my mind after I read that. So. I don't know. I, 
it, it reminds me of the the hadith uh, about you know heaven being surrounded by that which you dislike, right? And it's it's not really about you know whether you like it or not. You got to do it. Hmm. Yeah, I don't have much on that. I don't know. I I I, uh, I don't do a lot joyfully. I don't know. So <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe that's uh, maybe that's my cutoff. I'm not like a genius because of that or something. So yeah. Um, all right. Uh, this one is for me. It says, why did Tom choose to worship the blasphemer Abu Bakr instead of just paying his respects to Ahul Bayt? Tom, you fucking Nasibi Bakr worshiper. <laughs> yeah. What do you think of that one, Mike? I don't know. Why, why is he saying these things? <laughs> I don't know. I, I think a few episodes ago, I, someone asked me, why Sunni or Shia or something like that came up and I just sort of explained um, that Sunnism kind of feels like the default and uh, Shiism kind of asks you to, you know, buy into all this other stuff that doesn't seem as verifiable or compelling to me. So, uh, you know, I think he's just trolling here, but obviously Sunnis don't worship any of the Sahaba or Abu Bakr and, we also should be paying our respects to the Ahobayt. We certainly do in our prayers if we're doing them correctly. And uh, it's kind of an unfortunate thing that nowadays Sunnis are kind of like scared to say too many good things about the Ahobayt. Ahobayt, by the way, means the uh, like the household of the Prophet, so like his wives and, and such. So, um, yeah. This Fair stuff enough. is like funny to me, but it also <laughs> it's like I I really don't like the way that there's like Sunni versus Shia stuff, so it it does kind of like make me feel bad. But. I, it, it is it is I guess kind of kind of funny to to do it in this over over the top way because you know people people really get like super heated about it, especially on the internet in a in a way which like you know obviously is very unhealthy, and I guess like laughing at it can be a, a way of a way of dealing with that, but. Um, yeah. yeah, it's it's really unfortunate, like, the state of things now. I mean, like, you know, all you have to do is talk to, like, older Muslims, you know, who have a memory of the, the Muslim world, you know, from 30 or 40 years ago, and, and you'll realize how much has been lost. Yeah, I, I, I've mentioned this before, but I, when I was in Jordan, there were guys who were a little bit older than me, not much older than me, but maybe five years older or so. And they were telling me stuff like, I don't eat, like when I was a kid, we didn't know what Sunni and Shia was. Like that wasn't like a thing that we thought about or talked about. And now that's like the most important thing. It's the first thing you ask somebody and it's crazy. So, yeah. Uh, All right. How about this one? Hey guys, any advice for someone between the three worlds of being raised Protestant becoming an internet atheist in teen years, and then finding Catholicism appealing into adulthood. And then in parentheses, I went into triple parentheses Jesuit university. <laughs> any any readings that might help orient myself? So, um, yeah, I'll leave this up to you, Don, I guess. So they're interested in Catholicism after, yeah, like a journey. I guess like, uh, I don't know, my, my kind of go-to answer on this is... Uh, to read different things about the saints in different ways kind of thing, because it's like models of lives that just that are interesting and funny a lot of the times and, uh, or challenging in different ways. And 
I'm reading a book right now called The Long Loneliness by uh, Dorothy Day, which is her uh, autobiography. And she kind of talks about, she talks about it in a very relevant, critical, interesting way. I think going through that kind of journey from, she was like a Protestant as a youth, and then she went, became like an atheist, or or at least she, she sort of distanced herself from it, at least. She got really into like sort of the leftist politics of the time um, around just after World War One and stuff. And um, so she met a lot of the kind of famous people. She was in the socialist magazines and stuff. And I think that kind of thing is interesting because it's sort of uh, our cultural, you know, moment or whatever has a lot of these same sort of impulses around. And, uh, you know, it kind of talks about her journey from back into religion and how, but in a way that I think is very relevant to the way that she lives her life and stuff. Like she talks about obviously working with the poor a lot and uh, being very, very involved in people's lives, I guess, kind of thing. Um, I, I would sort of hesitate against, I mean, I, I, I'm a very ideological sort of person. Like I think about that kind of stuff a lot. And like, I really find theology and all that kind of stuff interesting. But in terms of the religion itself, I think one of the worst things you can do probably is just dive into the ideology so far that uh, you end up becoming sort of like one of those people that sort of like plays map games on Twitter kind of thing, like where you try to score points against other religions and all that kind of stuff and try to defend your side 100% and stuff. I, I, I think it's much more healthy to just kind of go, yeah, I don't know, maybe we're wrong about that or maybe they're wrong about that or whatever, you know, like kind of and focus really on the lived experience of it or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah. As for book recommendations, I only have one, which is Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Order or whatever it's called. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're going to talk about uh, Dorothy Day. Uh, I think in a, I'm going to finish reading the book and then uh, another one by her. And then I think we might do an episode on that in January or February or something. So we'll see. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. That'll be fun. Yeah. All right. Uh, what's the difference between a religion, a sect, and a cult? Yeah, this this uh, one always used to confuse me for most of my life where, I, you know, to me, any sort of religion was just uh, some sort of psychotic thing that people believed that it was like it, it had zero right to pretension over a cult kind of thing. You know, like it just didn't make sense to me that someone that was like a Christian might think of themselves as somehow more rational about things than someone into like Scientology or something like it just didn't. It just didn't make sense at all to me kind of thing. So that's been, it's, it's interesting to see how I do think that it's different now. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I think any religion or any ideology or anything can go haywire pretty quickly, especially given like group dynamics and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so, you know, you do want to sort of maybe not be too pretentious about it or whatever, you know, but like, uh, I don't know. I think, I think that th there are differences and the differences tend to do with uh, it more being a path for your life instead of being something where you're dominated by other people's ideas or something. So, you know. Yeah, I, I agree. It's definitely like the dynamics of the community that I think determines this. A sect is a little bit different to me because that is more like a way of categorizing the ways that people under a certain umbrella interact with each other and recognize each other as in group or out group and stuff like that. So like you wouldn't say that like there's a religion and then there's a sect that is like you're, a sect is part of a religion, right? They're not like equal categories. Sure. 
but a cult is something yeah like you were saying it's like about it's about the dynamics of it it's about the usually some sort of central charismatic figure who dominates people to a kind of unhealthy and abusive degree and sometimes it can start off benign and it turns into a cult and sometimes it doesn't even have a religious character like you can have cults that are not religious in that strict sense you know so Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that would be my take. It, it may be unhelpful, um, but I would maybe suggest to the questioner that they might want to read uh, Tal Assad, um, like the formations of the secular or something like that, um, just about the concept of religion, because the the concept of religion that we have now is not the historical kind of like religio concept where religion is about uh, tying your heart to God, right? Like that it's, it's something quite different now. And it's, it's like highly political, right? Like what is called religion and what is called a cult and so on, you know, these things are used to construct other categories, including the secular, right? So like stuff kind of flows at the margins between the secular and the religious as is politically convenient and between the religious and, you know, like forbidden cults that you can't, believe in as is politically convenient so yeah that's a very good point um talal Assad is very good i'm a big fan uh all right maybe we can wrap up with this one here another canada related question is justin trudeau the son of fidel castro it's plausible it's plausible i mean i'm not i'm not gonna rule that out like you know he it's he does bear a striking resemblance um, there's reason to think that his his mother may have been you know up to no good i i don't know i mean like you, you know justin trudeau is a very interesting guy like I, the thing that really struck me over the last couple of years was like the sudden emergence of all those blackface photos and it's like you, you know canada is a weird place right because there's stuff that like everyone knows, quote unquote, and like if you go talk to journalists in a bar, they'll they'll tell you stuff, right? Like people knew that like Rob Ford was smoking crack long before there was any definitive proof of it. There were, you know, obviously blackface photos of the prime minister circulating for for a long time, right? So you know who knows what else is out there um, that uh, could be you know secrets. Uh, or skeletons in his closet. I, I, I mean, at this point, I believe a lot of stuff. I think. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I probably, I mean, probably not. But like, uh, at the same time, it's like, uh, I, I, if I were him, I would, I would promote that story. I don't know. It's like <laughs> yeah, a cool it would, thing. It would be good for him. Yeah, know. probably. Yeah. So I don't know. You get to wear another costume. You know that. Mm. I'm sure that's a big appeal for him. Yeah. Um. I. I mentioned this the other day, but like uh, when he was running for leader, he uh, he said um, he was asked what country in the world that he most respects the political leadership of, and uh, he said China because they they uh, they use consensus so that they can drive through big changes without uh, political conflicts, and uh, that he said he you know they don't have multiple parties or whatever basically so that they they can kind of work together as a team kind of thing. And I thought that was amazing because no one cared really. I mean like conservative <laughs> bloggers did, but like it wasn't like a major, I mean, it was one of those small kind of stories along the line, but like, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, he, maybe he wanted to say Fidel and he couldn't, 
because uh, <laughs> the secrets he was holding. But like, uh, yeah, imagine if like Bernie Sanders had said that or something. Yeah. So, anyways, well, he kind of had a moment like that with the, like the Sandinistas or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I remember when that story came out and it had the same impact as when like Ilhan Omar says like, you know, not all Muslims are terrorists or something. And like there's a small number of wackos on the right who freak out about it or something. It was the same kind of reaction, but the actual content was much more worthy of attention, I thought. It was a little bit more (laughs) of a thing. Um, Yeah, funny stuff. I do know the truth about... Trudeau's uh, potential fatherhood and all that kind of stuff, but I will not tell. It is a secret. Okay. I don't know. Subscribe to the Patreon. Maybe I'll let let you know. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So we're going to end this episode with a comment from our uh, friendly neighborhood white supremacist. He says, first and foremost, Freddie Mercury was an Aryan. Second, as a homosexual, he admired the greatest examples of physical beauty that a race could produce, but could elaborate it better, for he was a man, thus with greater intellectual capacity and reach to describe his love. And as such, I establish, a lot of Queen's and Mercury's work are nothing but great examples of love letters to the magnanimous white race. So, makes sense to me. Yep. Yep. Yeah, thanks for writing in. Um, yeah, and thanks for coming on again, Mike. And, uh, that was great. And, you know, I'll have to strap in, get patient, take, uh, you know, a few vaccines a day and see what happens. So thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck with the, uh, the vaccines and hopefully, hopefully it all works out. <laughs> I can't wait to be doing podcasts with frothing at the mouth, like vaccine psycho dawn in a few months here. That'll be fun. <laughs> we just, we'll all have Bell's palsy and, and not be able to work half of our mouths. Sure. <laughs> that was something i forgot to ask you about that so is that that's another kind of bullshit thing right sort of like the sterile uh, it, it's very difficult to tell i mean the so it, it's possible that it is an effect of the vaccine and that it's a rare kind of uh, neurological phenomenon i mean the the fda's response i think this was mark peters who was saying this was basically like oh well like that's probably an imbalance in the trial group so what that means is that because randomization is not sometimes you might end up with people who are susceptible to this kind of thing uh, disproportionately represented in your experimental instead of your control group. Okay, that's possible, but if that's the case, then your trial randomization is not very good. And, you know, there's reason to suspect all of the data, which they don't suspect, right? Like, they're just like, okay, well, it's fine, except for this palsy thing. Um, and they, he also said there's no known mechanism by which this could occur um, and blamed it on a polyethylene glycol, um, which is found in, in a variety of um, biopharmaceutical preparations as just kind of a carrier. But the reality, I think, is that COVID has been shown to have neurological effects on people. So there's no reason to think that you know expressing the spike protein of COVID couldn't have neurological I mean, I don't see why you would say that. It definitely could. So, yeah, yeah. it's like if you're doing these, uh, you know, those old cigarette studies, and you're like, oh, all these people got cancer. I guess we just happened to pick a bunch of people who were had cancer. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah, well, yeah, certainly exactly. nothing to do with the cigarettes. Yeah, and and I mean, they they do carefully select um, trial participants in order to produce favored results. Like that, that's unquestionably 
something that occurs. So, you know, they, they have a lot of control over who is in these groups and the, the kinds of randomization procedures that they do. And so if, you know, it's a problem with that, then there's a problem with the trial more generally, I would guess. Yeah. It would be cool if half the country started talking like Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> that would be fun. We'd shake things up a little bit. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, thanks for coming on, Mike. Uh, this was very informative and a uh, fun conversation. Thanks again. Yeah. yeah, thanks for having me on the Blessed Pod. And uh, hopefully, uh, you know, we can keep an eye on things. And if something goes horribly wrong, I'll be back to recant and, and apologize to all the people with Bell's palsy. Yeah, and I think uh, we'll be doing that uh, that Pelly episode, the part two, which has been a long time coming. We'll we'll have you back on for that awesome. soon, awesome. some sometime soon. Yeah, it's yep. coming. Looking forward to that one. Yeah. So, all right, guys, if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like a second episode every week, you can subscribe to our Patreon and you'll get that as well as access to our Discord. And there you can chat with us and our lovely community. Um, If you would like to send in a question for us to answer anonymously on the podcast, you can do that by going to our Twitter account at YouCan'tWinPod, and you'll find a link to the Curious Cat pin there. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.